The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> it's the fifth day of our summer seven-day session, the 14th of January 2019, and um, we're going to uh, take up where we left off in Illuminating Silence by Master Sheng Yin. Um, Master Sheng Yin was talking about stages in uh, uh, Shikantaza or silent illumination practice. And we we'd looked at the first stage of, of, of just sitting, which which um, it's basically experiencing the totality of the of the bodies sitting there, the sensations of sitting as a kind of uh, uh, a gestalt. And just a, as a footnote here, um, elsewhere in talking about these different stages, Master Shengyin points out that that um, silent illumination or shikantaza is essentially a practice without stages. But he teaches it this way in order to make it more accessible because it can be a, a very elusive practice if one goes straight to the sort of the, the final um, expression of it. And so um, taking us through stages does make it much more accessible and um, uh, gives us kind of easier entry point into it. And uh, another point that is made over and over again is it's only possible if you are relaxed. And so this just sitting there being aware of the totality of one's sensations as one sits there um, is preceded by um, just consciously going through the different parts of the body starting with the top of the head and um, uh, releasing any tension one feels in in any area so just the, the head the, the uh, with including the eyes and the jaw and the mouth the neck and the shoulders the arms and the hands and then the front part of the um, uh, thoracic area and the back part um, the muscles of the abdomen are very important to release those and uh, working all the way down to the feet and the idea is you can do this as often as you need to any time if you're if you're noticing that the, the body is getting tense uh, one can go back to this this uh, sort of scanning relaxation which is is a kind of practice in its own right so um, at any point in this first stage, um, one can go back to this and then take up the, the, the just sitting, the just being aware of sitting. Um, after having done that one or more times, as many times as you need to. Master Sheng Yin then goes on to talk about um, the second level. Um, again, 
don't get too caught up on these levels. But he says, the second level arises when one is settled or at home in the meditation. When this stage appears, there is no longer any particular feeling of bodily presence. You know very well that your body is there on the cushion, but you have no particular awareness of its presence. One could say that the body as such no longer troubles or concerns you. At this level of meditation, at this level, um, meditation becomes deeply established. Even though you may be aware of local twinges of pain, it does not trouble you. Often they disappear entirely. In the same way that the body will cease to concern you, so too will the environment. Indeed, the environment and your awareness cease to be represented as two different things. Their duality melts into one experience. You hear the sound of birdsong, the bleeding of sh bleating of sheep and so on, but they do not concern you as such. Um, as a footnote, he was giving these um, teachings on a farm in Wales, hence the, the bleating of sheep. Your awareness encompasses them without dis distinguishing between inside and outside. The horizon of your awareness has gone far beyond such sounds so that you and they are not distinguishable. Although at this point body, environment and the mind are all clearly there, they no longer react upon one another, there is no sense of interference. The practitioner is aware of simply observing all this with no bothersome feeling. But you can't will this, this stage, it has to just, um, you have to let it arise. This is an important point. The third level might be described as gone beyond. There is no environment to be observed, no object of contemplation, and no subject of contemplation either. The, experiences, the experience is as if nothing exists. Although the meditator still knows that the body is on the cushion and that the room, the house, the countryside are all in place, she or he has ceased to be occupied in any observation of them. The mind is in a state of emptiness. In fact, that is precisely what we may say is still there, the state of emptiness itself. This emptiness has become the topic or focus of con contemplation. Even though the practitioner is not aware of doing it, her consciousness still has an object, emptiness itself. Unknown to herself, such a practitioner is still functioning with traces, traces of dualism in the mind. She thinks she has no existence, but she is still drawing on emptiness. Even though she thinks the self has disappeared, when she leaves the environment of sitting and returns to a daily life situation, she may still discover herself subject to all her old difficulties. While she has practiced well, she is still not, has still not developed fully the power of practice so as to enter enlightenment. But this is the, the point of this practice is to, is to uh, kind of cultivate the ground for awakening. But it isn't just a given, this isn't just um, 
immediately emerge out of entering into this uh, state of emptiness. And um, Master Xing Yin goes on to give um, an example of um, sort of the difference between experiencing this emptiness where there's still subtle subject and object and going going beyond that and really having insight into emptiness, the nature of emptiness. He says, once upon a time there was a monk who practiced diligently with his master. One day he felt he was certainly enlightened. He felt there could be no doubt about it because what he experienced was fully in, in accord with the sayings of the sutras. When he read them, he seemed to have a complete understanding, yet his master refused him affirmation. The monk decided to leave him. Off he went, paying his respects to other temple communities and other, other masters. And this monk, he doesn't name him, but the monk he, he's talking about is Dongshan, who um, later became one of the co-founders of the Soto school, the, the Cao Dong school in Chinese. This is a very famous story. So Dongshan was one day wading across a small stream and saw his reflection in the water. Aha! he cried. You are me, but I am not you. It is only in seeing you today that I understand. In that instantaneous moment of awakening, he was truly enlightened. Existence and emptiness had ceased to be opposites for him. In their experiential co-emergence, he had come to realization. The monk had seen a meaning in his reflection in the water. When we think about ourselves, we generate images of ourselves. Such images are like reflections in water. You are me, we might say. Yet we may also perceive that these images are empty of any sustainability, literally reflections. And in fact, when we talk about thinking, we say we reflect, I reflect on something. So, I am not you is also true regarding this uh, reflection, this image. When such insights coincide, what then remains? So here in, in this story, Dongshan sees his, his reflection in the surface of the, of the stream that he's crossing over. And it clicks that this reflection is at the same time him and not him. It's empty. And this leads to him understanding the same about the thoughts he has about himself. When we think, as Cheng Yin says, when we think about ourselves, we generate images of ourselves. The problem is that when we do this, uh, we, we generate, we think about ourselves, we generate an image in our mind, but we don't recognize it as being an image. We think it's the actual thing and so we believe in it and this leads to so much suffering 
We mistake the, the image for the thing itself. Whatever, however complex an idea we might have about ourselves, it's still uh, a poor um, simulacrum of us. We are much rounder and, and um, many-dimensional than any thought we can have about ourselves, or others for that matter. It's the same. And yet we believe these images, so we reduce ourselves down from vast complexities, which actually contain the whole universe, to something much less. And then we let that self-definition guide us. That's delusion, it's the nature of delusion. Came across another story, this is a, of a Korean, um, Won Hyo, he actually was the founder of um, an early school of Buddhism in Korea called the Pop Song Pop. <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. You know, reading it, it's Pop Song, the Pop Song School, but in Korean that means domination. <laughs> but it sounds it sounds like a fun school to be part of, right? <laughs> Anyhow, Won Hyo. Um, this is in the I don't know maybe the seventh or eighth century, something like that he decided to go to China to find a teacher so that he could learn more about Buddhism. And um, he was on this, this long pilgrimage, walking, and um, had to rest. Uh, darkness fell, and he found in himself in this field, and he was too tired to go any further, and anyway, it was very dark. And so um, he he stopped for the night, uh, but he was very thirsty. And so um, in the pitch black, he um, just groped around on the ground. And after a while, he found a bowl of water. And so he, he drank his fill and was, was delighted because it, the, the water was so fresh and thirst quenching. And it tasted like nectar to him. The next morning, when he woke up, he saw in the daylight that he had spent the night, he um, slept in, in an old um, ruined tomb, and that actually the bowl that he had uh, drunk from was a shattered skull filled with dirty water. And at that moment, he was quite shocked and repulsed by this. But in that moment, he realized and this is a quote, thinking makes good and bad, life and death. And without thinking, there is no universe, no Buddha, no Dharma. All is one, and this one is empty. And he decided, having had this, this profound insight, that there was no need for him now to find a master, to go to China. He realized that the truth was right here before him. Um, thinking makes good and bad, life and death. And without thinking, there is no universe, no Buddha, no Dharma. These are all um, things that we create with our thoughts. Very similar to, to um, something that Shakespeare said. 
There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So it's huge. It's it is a huge step when we start to um, recognize thoughts as thoughts. And and thoughts encompasses emotions here as well. Closely related. And and symbiotic. And if we do this, if we start to be able to really um, recognize that it's through our thinking that we create our world, our universe, then we can start to be, rather than looking out from our thoughts and feelings at the world, we can look at the thoughts and feelings. see them for what they are. It's a Zen saying, do not be concerned with wandering thoughts arising. Be concerned with not being aware of them. Not recognizing them as, as thoughts and feelings. And this goes for the wandering kind, the sort of the random um, stuff that the, the consciousness throws up, and the recurring, uh, persistent ones, the, the recurring themes. The Buddha taught um, quite, quite simply about, about thought. He said, he said, and this is, this is like a little slogan we can remember, where there is perception, there is deception. Where there is perception, there is deception. It's not hard to see this actually, that um, any, any time we perceive something, then we're doing it from a particular standpoint so that limits it and we, we can only see a certain amount of what we're perceiving if we're perceiving it using our senses. What we perceive with the senses is limited and so it's not the whole picture, it's never the whole picture. In fact very often it's a distorted picture distorted by um, assumptions we make about what we're seeing, previous experiences, views that we hold, like filters that, that change what we see. Buddha also said, "Your worst enemy cannot calm you as can, cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts." 
Master Xingyin continues. Most practitioners are attached either to existence or emptiness. Attachment to existence is dualistic involvement with either subject or object. Attachment to emptiness arises when you become attached to the feeling that this duality has disappeared. Then there is still a subtle dualism, attachment of self to its experience of emptiness. When existence and emptiness merge in a great laugh, their separate appearances cease to be, and there is no longer a contradiction with phenomenal reality. So this is what happened when Dongshan saw his, his reflection in the stream. He, he, he saw both its existence and its emptiness at the same time. practitioner might ask me, Shifu, what is the fourth level, enlightenment, really like? It is only possible to respond to such a question with analogies, metaphors or stories. Any attempt to fix such an insight in words would err in creating some sort of descriptive concreteness, lacking entirely the taste of co-emerging presence and emptiness. While the preceding levels can be described, the fourth level can only be indicated a signless signpost points out over an ocean. Indeed, we should not occupy ourselves in attempts at fixing enlightenment in some concrete verbal expression. It is better to practice at the differing levels, to cease attachments to them, and eventually to run off the rails. The final destination is beyond the track. It is trackless. So, so it, we don't even need to concern ourselves with it, trying to figure out what it's like or what it is, but just practice and not be attached to um, these levels either, um, to just practice where we need to practice. That is, that is a full expression of the truth, which, which Master Dogen emphasized again and again and again whether we're, a, we're just beginning or have been practicing for many years, to just practice wholeheartedly at which, which in whichever mode is, is most suitable for us at that moment is all we have to do. This, um, the, the, the uh, seeing into our true nature, the Kensho, or this fourth, fourth level, will happen in its own time. It's like, um, think of it like, like uh, fruit ripening and then dropping when it's ready to drop. You don't want to interfere with that fruit as it ripens and just um, disturb the process. Just, just keep, keep watering the tree, shining light on it. Fertilizing it with our, our um, experience, our delusions actually are the, are the fertilizer for this unfolding.
So far as our practice together here is concerned, it is important that we all have in common some basic ideas concerning what we are attempting. The levels I have indicated will be helpful indicators for your sitting, but bearing in mind the prior practice of some of you, I maintain flexibility rather than a fixed approach. If you are using another method in, in accordance with the Chan endeavour, then fruition of practice can still arise. However, if your practice is rooted in concepts at variance with those of Chan, then the results you will get will reflect your alternative conceptualizations and not be considered Chan experience. Concept determines the outcome of practice. Um, this is something he stresses in other places and I think it's very important that, um, especially for us in the West, where we're not brought up in a, in a Buddhist culture, um, we can have quite mistaken ideas about what practice is for and and why we're doing it and um, the outcome will not be the same if if the the, the, the sort of fundamental motivation is um, not in accord with the teachings so having a, a view a, um, a correct view of what we're doing and why we're doing it is important and the, the central um, teaching that is that is more is so important here is uh, bodhicitta it's um, giving rise to this um, uh, self-transcending aspiration which is to to realize the truth so that we can bring others along so others may also realize that same truth, that truth of liberation. He goes on to talk a little bit about the, the um, origins of this practice of silent illumination. He says the words silent and illumination are both essential and bring out clearly the conditions of practice the method and the concepts necessary for success. Silent illumination practice itself developed from the old Indian practices of shamatha and vipassana. These mean calming the mind and insightful contemplation, respectively. Before the time of Hongzhi, and he was the he, he was the one who sort of systematized the use of silent illumination, and he's about contemporary with. Um, Dahui and Yuan Wu. Before the time of Hongzhi, Chinese masters commonly taught these as separate methods. Sometimes in Japan, these methods are also used as supplementary practices to Shikantaza. Calming the mind commonly utilizes watching or counting the breath, whereas insightful contemplation requires the practitioner to watch the practice with a questioning intent asking what this experience actually is. In silent illumination, we use these two processes together. Not only does this, this improve the efficiency of meditation, but it also avoids the complexities of practicing with successive systems. From the time of Hongzhi, the integrated practice of silent illumination became the main method in the Cao Dong school. 
it is the simultaneous practice of calming the mind with questioning observation. And this is, this is important, as we, I was saying yesterday or the day before, that all of the different practices we do, including um, shikantas or just sitting, have an element of questioning. It's much more a matter of, of what the emphasis is. An, an element of questioning and equally an element of calming the mind. It is the simultaneous practice of calming the mind with questioning observation. When the mind does not move, that is silence. When you become insightfully aware of that very same stillness, then that is illumination. While watching moving, moving thoughts is called vipassana, watching silence is the combination of calming and a questioning observation. That is silent illumination. Why do we begin by contemplating total body awareness rather than partial awareness, say, of the movement of breath at the nostrils or counting of breaths or observation of posture? The reason is that in focusing on the totality, there is less discrimination than with when observing parts. Attention to the totality also reduces the arising of thoughts connected within the discrimination of parts. Even when the mind is distracted, one can, can sustain total bodily awareness. Um, though it's quite, it's quite challenging to, um, to maintain a train of thought and um, keep going with the, the total bodily awareness. So the, the, the effort in, in trying to hold that in mind, that, that total bodily awareness can help still the thoughts, is the point he's making here. Skipping forward a bit, he says, During practice, breathing should be natural. When there is some tension, the breathing becomes distorted and may require regulation. Simply allow the breath to become gentle while being aware of it either at the nostrils or in the lower abdomen. The essential feature of regulating the mind is to keep returning to the practice. It is important not to waste time by being carried away by wandering thoughts. Yet it is equally no good developing an aversion to them. By constantly bringing the mind back to the method of practice, we move from a scattered to a concentrated mind, and from a concentrated mind to a one-pointed mind. From this, the no-thought condition may arise. Good practice leads from a noisy mind through a quiescent and more unified one to no-thought itself. Some people think may think that no thought is enlightenment, but this is my, by no means necessarily the case. It is usually a resting condition or a deep inwardness. What is then needed is to drop self-centeredness, for it is only when this happens that enlightenment arises. Various means of self-confrontation are usually required. Clearly this is not easily done. 
Indeed, if you are even thinking about it, self-concern is obviously there. Um, this, this point is, uh, is one that cannot be re repeated enough. That, that um, insight cannot happen without um, dropping self-centeredness. This is what enlightenment arises out of. And, and it's, it's, this is why um, it's so important to, um, sit in a group and sit with, have a teacher to, to um, engage in practices which help us to drop our self-centeredness, to drop our self-importance. One of the ways that we do this um, in a group is, is by um, harmonizing with the group, by, by contributing to the, the, the atmosphere we create in Sesheen and um, following all the different guidelines and rules. Because when we do this, we, we drop our self-importance, we drop us our favoring ourselves and um, join with, harmonize with the group. To, to um, overtly or um, surreptitiously uh, break the rules um, often is a, is a way in which the self and the, sen the sense of self-importance gets reinforced. We're, we're made aware in this that Zen is not a technique for acquiring a certain experience. Like you could come to, to Sesheen and, and just do the sitting, ignore the rest of it, and then at a certain point have some kind of um, amazing, wonderful uh, experience. Zazen is really, we have to see and understand Zazen more as is, it's one aspect of a way of life that aims at dissolving this, this uh, deluded nation we have of, notion we have of being separate from the rest of existence and, and um, this notion is the source of our suffering and the source of the suffering that we inflict on others and there's no way we can we can do this work uh, just with strong zazen even assiduous zazen if we're not um, making an effort to um, work on attrition of that, that self-importance at other times as well. Throughout the practice, the key principle 
is a single-minded focus on whichever of the retreat activities is currently in process. Whatever you are doing, do that and nothing else. And do it, do it wholeheartedly, do it sincerely. Never think about sitting while eating or eating while sitting. It is bad for digestion and bad for the mind. If you think too much when you have retired to bed, you cannot have a sound sleep. So this is, this is a fundamental um, principle. To do one thing at a time and to do it with a whole body and mind. To a physical activity, bring your mind to it. To a mental activity, bring your body to it as well. In practicing Chan, there are three principles to bear in mind. Contemplation, illumination, retrieval. The first principle, contemplation, is to focus very clearly on the method. The second, illumination, is to develop a very precise awareness of the actual practice. And the third, retrieval, is to keep retrieving or bringing back the method whenever it is lost. Although these three principles may seem simple, they are not so easily applied in situations where the mind is severely scattered by powerful emotions, memories, or by wandering listless thoughts. Bringing back the practice may be quite difficult because a scattered mind may not easily recognize its own condition this is the problem, this is the why we have to learn to concentrate. However, once we have realized how easily we become lost in practice, our mindfulness of what we are doing becomes more focused and it becomes easier to recollect these principles. There is no point in regretting the previous moment. When the scattered mind has been lost in aimless mental rummaging among old-time hopes and fears, it does no good to indulge in such regrets. Whenever we discover that we have become distracted, the practitioner should not blame herself, but simply bring back the method. We should not blame ourselves. We're subject to causes and conditions. We, we can't do anything about what has contributed to our, the present state of mind in the past. But what we can do is train the mind now. That we have some choice about. It is also important to apply these principles at times when we are engaged in other retreat activities besides sitting. All of these require us to sustain a one-pointed mind. For example, in walking, the practitioner should sustain a quiet mind even though she is physically moving and the environment is passing by. At such a time, the mind should be like a mirror, simply reflecting what is moving past. Like the mirror, the mind should not like a mirror, the mind should not move. As with sitting, there are three levels of awareness in walking meditation. The 
first level of awareness is when you know very well that you are walking and you consciously direct your body in its movement. To this we may then apply the three principles. Here contemplation means directing the bodily movement, correctly placing the legs and feet and holding the posture, moving like a mountain. Illumination here means being aware of doing this practice and feeling the total bodily awareness of so doing. Retrieval here means bringing your mind back to the experience of the moment whenever it has been distracted. So these simple, we can apply these, these three, contemplation, illumination and with retrieval. goes on to talk about um, the, this, these, the three levels of um, silent illumination that um, he talked about before and applying them to, to walking or to kenhin. Um, he makes, at the end, makes a, um, an important point. He says, we always start from the first level, for you cannot move to the second directly. You cannot willfully or deliberately move from the first to the second. You have to work up to it. And remember the first was um, the body awareness and the second was more when there's a merging of um, one's awareness of the body and of the environment and a, a kind of panoramic awareness arises. So that's what you can't will. You have to work up to it. In other words, you, you, all you can do is cultivate it until it arises. Uh, on its own. He says, you cannot willfully or deliberately move from the first to the second. You have to work up to it. Anything done from the ego fails to work. Again, we come back to this, this, this um, self-concern. Anything done from the ego fails to work. No amount of contriving, fabrication or imagining will do it. If you try to imagine the second level, the practice simply gets lost in the imagination. These changes come about naturally in their own way and in their own time when you persist in practicing correctly. There is nothing else you can do about it. I remember um, Mitra, who, who's now the teacher in, um, in uh, Taos in New Mexico, Mitra Roshi, she used to say, it's just about getting, your, getting out of the way. We just have to get out of our own way. And then, then these stages unfold. But that takes great patience, great persistence, because we don't know when there'll be this unfolding. What is the basic concept of Chan? The key intention is to experience Buddha nature, everlasting and pervasive. What is this Buddha nature? It can be called the nature of emptiness. The nature of emptiness is neither an absence of phenomena, nor is it nothingness. Rather, the key sense of this term is impermanence. 
There is no permanent person, me, you, or anyone else. Nobody is everlasting or unchanging. In addition, there is no everlasting, unchanging environment. We say that because self and environment are both impermanent, they are empty of inherent existence. Putting it another way, we say that we cannot predicate existence as a constant property of anything because nothing is ever still, ever the same. We're always looking into that flowing water and seeing reflections on it. You can't grasp at one of those reflections because it's already the whole um, re of reality has changed. Existence is like a river. It seems to be there, but the water we see is never the same. What is emptiness empty of? This is a key question. Something is empty when we see it as having no thingness. It is not an entity in itself, separate from the rest of existence. It is always engaged in the flowing, changing whole that is the universe. We, each of us, is always engaged in this flowing, changing whole. We are flowing and changing. We're exchanging substance with that world, constantly. In the practice of Chan, the praise seeing the nature means experiencing the reality of the flowing aspect of everything. We see the reality of emptiness in the disappearance of the conception of one's mind as a thing. We are not saying there is nothing at all. It is simply that perceiving things as things is an error in attribution. Things are as they are. A mobile thusness is their nature. It is crucial to have some insight into these ideas, otherwise we cannot conceive of the meaning of enlightenment or why we are practicing with such a conceptual background. An enlightenment experience is a moment when seeing the nature is directly apprehended, not as an idea, a hope, a trance state, a form of samadhi, but totally, immediately, in actuality, with no interference from a dualistic sense of self in play with otherness. Without a personal realization of the nature of emptiness, our worries, anxieties, fixations, projections, and transference all appear as true experiences or as ent entities that we cannot let go. This is why this, this direct experience is so important. Because no matter how much somebody tells us that these things are uh, without substance, we, unless we see for ourselves, it's not really going to have much effect. Maybe a little. Maybe we get pointed in the right direction. But not even the Buddha can free us, ultimately. Imagine the Buddha Shakyamuni, the sage of the Shakya clan, if he was to work, walk into the Zendo right now, he wouldn't be able to, to wave a wand and liberate any of us. We have to do it ourselves. We have to have that personal experience 
We have to see. That's why looking directly is so important. Looking with this mind of questioning. The, the mind of, of not knowing. Grief, jealousy, arrogance and doubts continue as we go on believing the objects and events which gave rise to them are in some sense solid, historical and real. Somebody who has seen the nature, has experienced Kensho, has let go of these vexations and at least in that moment is without vexation and has known enlightenment. When a practitioner experiences a deep enlightenment, self-centeredness, even as an illusion, comes to an end. Do not fear that in such a state nothing exists. It is in fact a state pervaded by a life of happiness and bliss expressed in compassion and wisdom. As beginning practitioners we are, of course, still engaged in self-centered action and in self-consciousness. An awareness that still takes oneself as the most important thing in the world and for which all events that affirm the value of one's being comprise the material of our attachments to objects and other persons. Since nothing holds together for long, these attachments are continuously producing vexations for us. A painful body is a vexation. Psychological problems are vexations. When others do not affirm our opinion of ourselves, that too is vexatious. Yet, while this self-conscious concern lies at the root of vexation, it is also the starting point for practice and for the letting go of those very attachments that are the roots of vexatious living. I think it was Yasutani Roshi said that we shouldn't um, uh, completely discount the, in, the ego or, or completely reject it since it is what brings us to the practice. Our task is to use the ego to go beyond the ego. A strong ego provides a platform on which to begin determined practice. While on the one hand we seek to go beyond attachment, on the other hand we use this very existence as the basis for transcendence. The basic concepts of Chan are also the root concepts of Buddhism. Essentially, we have been seeking here of what, speaking here of what Gautama, the Buddha, himself realized sitting beneath the Bodhi tree. Life is suffering. Suffering is due to addictive attachment to a false conception of oneself and the things of this life that support or threaten that self. There is a way beyond this condition that transcends the fears of impermanence and that way is the practice itself. It seems very simple, does it not? The only problem is that it is indeed difficult to let go of our attachments. We need to use the methods of practice and inform our lives with their meaning. Concept, practice and transcendent are all related. Again, we need to use the methods of practice 
and inform our lives with their meaning to become saturated in these teachings and to to give rise to them to to practice them throughout our lives in every situation and with only then do we have some chance of transforming ourselves of these these seeds that are in uh, in us uh, fully um, coming to fruition in their own time we'll stop here and recite four vows without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org dot org dot nz